0: Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens. I am a OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist at UMMC. And today I am joined by a sister friend, colleague, um, Dr. Christy Haygood, who is a gynecologic oncologist or GYN oncologist for short. She is a specialist in female cancers or cancers of the female tract so all your lady parts um, that um, might be vulnerable to cancer she is the person who advocates educates um, who screens and who treats and so we are so fortunate to have her today to celebrate with us September which is okay it's the intro to fall Football season gets really up and going, but it is also Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And so we are kicking off the beginning of our month. And um wanted to do so with our guest, who's not our first-timer, but hadn't been here in a while. She's a pre-pandemic person, came in here, didn't recognize the studio, so we had to orient her a little bit. But so good to have Dr. Haggood with us this morning. Good
2: morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to come and talk anywhere about ovary cancer and the things that I treat. And, of course, to be back in the studio again with you, Dr. Owens. It's um, I have known I, I think I'll call you Michelle now, if that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, we've known each other a very long time. And oh, my then, gosh, yes. I, I feel
0: like, I look, as my grandmother would say, I've known her since she was
2: knee-high to a June bug. And that's about <laughs> right. I mean, really, before I was in college. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and now, crazy? And now here we are back again. And now I'm on staff at UMC, which is new to me but different, gives a whole new Depth to the education and things that we get to provide to the residents and yeah. the students. And well,
0: having a chance to to have known you then and to watch you grow into this amazing force within women's healthcare has been amazing. Um, it makes people question my stated age, but um, <laughs> no, no. but it is but it has really been wonderful. And I was so glad to see you return to Mississippi um, and to you know establish a practice. Um, in town here in Jackson to um, to be able to share your expertise and and your compassion and your kindness with the folks here at home. So for the people who might not have heard um, you as a guest on our show before, just kind of introduce yourself to the folks, let them know, you know, where you're from and kind of what your training has been, and um, go into a little bit of, well, we, they kind of know a little bit about what you do, but maybe a little bit more in detail about what you're doing right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, G1 Oncology is a long road. Um, we do seven years of training, so we actually train for four years as an OBGYN and then we do an additional three years of fellowship, both to learn the kind of nuanced surgery parts, a little bit more expertise in pelvic surgery, and then to follow with the chemotherapy side as well for those GYN cancers. So we do both as GYN oncologists, which is a little bit different from either cancer surgeons. Typically, most of them just do surgery. Um, and then you have medical oncologists that typically do chemotherapy. So a lot of GYN oncologists do both. We do both the surgery followed by chemo as well as doing surveillance. And then um, we do some prophylactic stuff now, which really helps has Increased over time, but um, that's what I do, and yeah, then, like the triple threat, yeah, they do it all. We do it, we yeah. do a little bit of everything. Um, I'm from Mississippi, uh, I'm from Crystal Springs, grew up, you know, small town, went to Kabai Academy, went to Mississippi College, then went to UMC for training. So, um, moved to Birmingham. I before I moved to Birmingham, Ooh, I, Birmingham. I, I s- <clears throat> spent my whole life in a 26 mile radius, so uh, it was a big move, but it was what I felt. I was called to do and what would give me the best opportunity to be able to do that. And then to be able to come back to this state, there aren't many of us here. There aren't many people, um first of all, there's not that many physicians. And there
0: aren't a lot who look like you, by the way. <laughs> not not in oncology and not in GY even in GYN oncology. Right. So really underrepresented when you think about females. Mm-hmm. It's just not Interestingly enough, because there are lots of people, they think of OBGYNs as being kind of more now, more female. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you still are kind of somewhat of a unicorn.
2: We are. So even um, we are transitioning. The fellowships now are more female, um, and mostly because the numbers in OBGYN are so much more female-led now. And that, um, I love my male colleagues. I would never... I would never say anything about that, but um, it is more female now um, in training, but around here, still about 50 50. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I thought
0: that was really one of the unique things when I left Baltimore and came to Mississippi in the OBGYN department at that time. There were two OBGYN, two female OBGYNs in the whole department. Total. When I came here, yeah, and that was in 2004, so which was really surprising because we've been hearing, oh, since the like late 80s, early 90s, there's been this shift, and now OB/GYN is predominantly female, but there were still there are still pockets and places mm-hmm. even within our field where they there the numbers don't really reflect kind of the national trends right. and so um what i found is that especially in the deep south that tends to be the case Black. um mm-hmm. and we are also as since we're sitting here as two female subspecialists in right. OB, in the specialty of obgyn um it's interesting because for a long time at specialty meetings you could you would if you were going to the meetings where there were general OBGYNs, you would see more women. But when you went to your subspecialty meetings, there were still way more men than there were women. Right. And so it was it, it has taken a while. For um, the pendulum to shift a little bit. Um, and and I think, look, I think it takes us all. Um, and I think that there are definitely wonderful things that are brought to our specialty by all people who endeavor to do Absolutely. their best to help improve the health care of women in general. Um, but... It sure is good to have some some ladies in the club. I don't know. Some, some moms. I also am a mom of yeah. three.
2: And three is the magic number, by the way. I love three. That's great. <laughs> um, somebody's a little bit left out all the time, so maybe there should be four, but I'll, I won't go anymore. Look,
0: if, if you, are you suggesting something? Should I, well, for should you? I mark? <laughs>
2: I Not think for the me. Shop
0: is closed. <laughs> um, no, but I mean three is look three is magical for me. We are so happy, guys. Our phone lines are open. I'm, we are just chit chatting here. I'm here with um, my good friend and colleague Dr. Christy Haygood. She's a gyn oncologist, so um, a female um, tract cancer specialist, and we are talking. So we really can talk about all things lady cancer, um, but specifically. Since September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, we kind of want to focus a little bit on giving people some information on ovarian cancer. And she and I were talking during the break about um, the one of the last times, or maybe the time before the last when sh- when we were here together, and we had an opportunity, um, Dr. Brown and I, to do a wonderful show where we actually had a patient
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and a look a patient and a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Dr. Haygood was with us um for that for that segment too it was the four of us uh sitting around the sitting around the table and um we were speaking about that because we are here together today um and while Dr. Brown is out um at a conference um Unfortunately, Lori Newcomb, who was the person who was here with us in that studio, that patient, that advocate, that wonderful, amazing human, um, succumbed to her disease. Um, But, man, she did it so gracefully. And she was just the epitome of of grace and, and style and advocacy and light and positivity. And so we had that little moment where we were here and excited and at the same time, there was a little bit of, of sadness. sadness, yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. and because her loss was palpable, um, and I think we still feel it. Yes, absolutely. Which is which is just a, I think a, a huge testament to the tremendous, like the tremendous influence that we have as as people. Um, you don't have to have a fancy degree. Nope. Um, you don't have to you know have accolades and titles and all these other things but just the the relationships and how you can take something that happens to you and use it and use yeah. it to yeah. really be a strong voice and and to create space and positivity in the world which yeah. is just an amazing thing that we had the the privilege and honor of watching her do Yep,
2: yeah. it's not um a lot of times cancer is I would say cancer is never the story that anybody wants to write or wants in their life. But the way that we use our experiences to prevent, to help treatment, to advance research. And I I don't know that in my lifetime I'll see another patient that did that as well as Lori did. She had a lot of resources, and she used every bit of those, not to help herself, because she kind of knew that everything she did would be to help somebody else. And if it was screening or if it was let's prevent this from ever coming back, let's hope no one ever has a recurrence. Let's hope people always understand how their family history plays into this. Let's hope people always know. I think Lori's biggest advocacy was in making sure that women understood that the symptoms are sneaky and they're tricky. They are.
0: Ovarian cancer is super sneaky. That's right. Like super sneaky.
2: It is the, it is, probably
0: one of the more tricky ones of all of them
2: I, I don't know that there's one that would be um, more subtle in its beginnings um, well said and so that was probably the biggest thing Lori said was look women you got to understand that if you are having something that's not going away if you have a pain that just doesn't feel right if you're you need to know who you can talk to about that and you need to be an advocate for yourself um, and 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 just being aware of symptoms and being aware of your body functions and how important that is and to have somebody that you trust to be able to go to and say, I've, I've got this thing that's not going away and, and I need to talk to a doctor about it. And I need somebody to take me seriously and to get the tests that I need done. And then to advocate for yourself if you're not listened to or don't feel like you're being taken seriously I think Lori did that really well yeah she did I think a wonderful model and a wonderful example
0: of a person that that you know had a really difficult road that she traveled but she traveled it with with joy and and with optimism um yeah Mm -hmm. and hope absolutely So um, we have a caller on the line, and so we are going to pause right there because all those things that you mentioned, we are definitely going to kind of touch on a little bit so that people have a little bit more awareness. But we are going to stop for a second and hear from Rebecca, who's calling us from Gulfport this morning. Good morning, Rebecca.
1: Good morning from the rainy
0: little coast. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Look, and and when I think of the coast, I'm always thinking sunshine and sand. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Well, I I can actually see one patch of blue sky. So we're, we're doing good.
0: <laughs> What's your question?
1: And, and, hey, Lace, I, I had a, a pap smear for the first time in like 10 years. And it came back and she said, well, your pap smear is negative, but you were positive for HPV and dropped it right there and never said anything else. Um, is this something I should be worried about? So, um,
0: so Dr. Haygood. Um Because, and this is a, you know what, Rebecca, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, H, because a lot of people now will have additional information on your pap smears. A long time yep. ago, it was just, are the cells normal? Or are they not normal? Did you yes, have sure enough? Not. Are they the right ones? That kind of thing. Um Now... There, there are so many different additional pieces of information that we can can obtain. And HPV typing for pap smears, which, by the way, pap smears are screening for cervical cancer. Bingo. Okay? So screening for cervical cancer. And so part of cervical cancer screening, which for the most part is actually being done less frequently than we used to do That's it. That's right. Um, but the cervical cancer screening that is done can often give you information about... HPV, which is the human papillomavirus, and that is the virus that is primarily responsible for causing um, most the most common types of ovarian cancer, and there are a bunch of different types, but they take HPV and they split it into two categories for the most part. There's a high-risk HPV category mm-hmm. and a low-risk HPV category. And the MFM is going to allow the GYN oncologist to take it from there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So that's exactly right. Um, And one important point that I wanted to be sure that we talked about, too, is that because ovary cancer is sneaky, a lot of women will think, well, I had a pap smear and that was normal, so I don't have ovary cancer. But that's not necessarily true um, because pap smears only look at the outside of the cervix and then a small amount of cells on the inside of the cervix. And and like Dr. Owen said, what we're trying to pick up um, with a pap smear is are there Abnormal cells or not abnormal cells on the cervix. And then do we detect HPV? Because what we know now, not just cervical cancer, but also oropharyngeal cancers now, the vast majority of those are caused by the HPV virus. Now, here's what I tell all my patients about HPV. If you've had sex in America you've had HPV. So don't be freaked out about it. Don't be scared about it. Now, here's the other thing about HPV is it's a little bit tricky. So if you get um, told you have positive HPV tests, it does not mean that you cheated on your spouse or your spouse cheated on you. This thing can be dormant for years and years, even up to 20 years and not be picked up again. So then when it is picked up, it could have been your former partner, his former partner, her former partner, Anyone, really. So the vast majority of people, though, who have HPV never have a problem with HPV. Now, we know that HPV can cause cervical cancer. Most people do not develop cervical cancer from having HPV. So typically, if you have a positive HPV test based on the type. So we can type them out. Now we can say this is a low risk type. This is a low risk type. And then based on any of your other prior factors, like did you have abnormal palp smears before? Have you had a biopsy? Have you had treatment before for cervical pre-cancer? Then we decide when you need another follow-up. Sometimes we'll bring you back in. We'll take a look at your cervix, do biopsies and determine if that's necessary. Um, Or sometimes we just say, look, it was your first one. It's low risk. We want to repeat it next year. And that's not an unreasonable approach.
0: And it's a good thing because I think a lot of people don't realize that our bodies actually have, so we. COVID has made everybody virologists. Everybody <laughs> is a virologist and an immunologist. That's right. And so when we're talking specifically about HPV and risk, um, one of the things that I think gets lost in that is that sometimes you can be exposed to that virus and your body can clear it. And it's done. And yeah. You never even know about it. And, and so that's why when you mention sometimes you just take a look or you'll say, we'll hold off and we'll repeat it later or whatever, and it can quote, go away. Now, cancer doesn't go away on its own. Cancer requires treatment. But if you just have an HPV infection or exposure, your body, most people's bodies Mm -hmm. um, have the ability to actually fight that viral infection and keep it under control or eliminate it to the extent that it does not have to be a significant risk factor for you.
2: Can we put in one plug, too, please. for the vaccine? So, go is, Please go right ahead, because yep. I was going to hit that one, too. Next, <laughs> next topic. Um, so for Gardasil vaccine, so this is a vaccine that we actually have against the HPV virus. It currently covers for nine different types of viruses, and that covers about 97% of the cervical cancers in the U.S., which is... Really huge. It's so, amazing. Right. It is amazing. And and we. so here's what you'll kind of read on the Internet is that we don't have the data to say in the U.S. that we decrease cancer rates based on the Gardasil vaccine. And that's technically true. But, but to caveat that is what we know is that based on Australian data over – Vers- also, if we're talking about vaccines, we have to mention safety data. Gardasil has over twenty years of safety data, so it's been FDA approved for twenty years. Which means not only do we have twenty years of safety data since it's been approved, we had to have safety data for ten plus years before it was approved. So, um, it's a very safe vaccine, and it's extremely effective. In fact, it's so effective that while it used to be only approved up to age twenty six, it's recently been approved up to age forty five, and that's based on the rise of of throat and oral cancers actually in men so not just women who need to be vaccinated for this because there's no pap smear for men so we don't pick it up as easily but they're carriers and poor guys you guys are missing out no pap smear for you sorry dudes um you do have to get your prostate checked though so i wouldn't want to sign up for that necessarily there is that part
0: Um, So, Rebecca, I think one of the good things would be because you mentioned that you were told you were HPV positive. I think a good follow up question to your your um, care provider would be what type Mm -hmm. of HPV that you are positive for and usually they will be able to tell you whether it's a high risk or low risk and the other thing is if you request your records or if you see that in a medical report because a lot of people have access to um, reports now and you can see them you guys will see these streams of numbers long numbers Um, and so these are usually like numbers like 6, 11, 18, you know, 16, 32, 30, like all these different numbers. And those numbers are the subtypes where they determine um, if they are in the high risk or low risk category. It's not like a numerical thing. So it's not just like based on where the number is, it's high risk or low risk, but it's specific to the particular viral subtype. So just be aware that when you see those reports, it may look really confusing. But the biggest the, I guess the most important information is if it's high risk or low risk. And the other thing that I would say is the significance of that information for you in particular, Rebecca, is going to also um, be based on other things. Do you smoke? Mm-hmm. Are you a person who's immunocompromised for some other reason? Other things that would increase your risk overall, um, because that information will be important in your um, provider determining what the next steps need to be for you and how often you need to be followed
2: right so it may not be anything that you need to do urgent um, but I definitely would suggest that you have a follow-up plan and that follow-up plan at minimum needs to be a recheck at some point
1: okay thanks a lot
2: awesome thanks so much for your question so,
0: um, i really got, so guys, one other thing to think about. So HPV, we talked about that as a, a cause for um, cervical cancer. but is HPV related to ovarian cancer? It is not. Good to know. Today's show is focused on ovarian cancer awareness, but since we have a person with much more diverse expertise than that here with us today, we are joined by Dr. Christy Haygood, who is gynecologic oncologist. Say that 10 times fast. Um, And so we are talking all things female cancer, but we are trying to take special moments out to talk specifically about ovarian cancer, since this month is ovarian cancer awareness. Um, So what do you know about ovarian cancer? We have Talked a little bit about how sneaky of a booger that is, um, but let's talk a little bit more about it. So, Dr. Hager, can you t- speak specifically? We've talked about this thing, and we and and I know that there's some good news about cancer in general, and and. And especially in in female cancers, when we think about death rates. But so how is a person like what are the risk factors? We had a caller that spoke to us about HPV or asked about HPV. And we talked about the link between HPV and cervical cancer. Fortunately, HPV is not related to ovarian cancer. But what things do put you at risk for ovarian cancer?
2: Yeah, so some things that we think about for risk of ovarian cancer specifically, probably the biggest factor is your family history. And that's why as long as you can, you always should know your family history. So specifically knowing did my family have um breast cancer because some of those are linked those genetic mutations that lead to cancer development. So that's important. Other things like Um, having long cycles, meaning you started your periods early, you went into menopause late, not having children is actually a risk factor for ovarian cancer. Um, not breastfeeding is a risk factor. Um, and then, you know, things that would decrease your risk being on birth control pills, having children. So
0: that's kind of one of those those things things. that I think is pretty interesting. So not having children, Mm -hmm. but then on this, on the At the same time, being on birth control pills will decrease your risk. So not having children can put you at risk or is a risk factor. That's right. But being on birth control pills decreases your risk.
2: Um, So how does that work? Yeah, so fundamentally. um, So if you think, to me, this is the way I think about it. So cancer always develops or develops from a defect or a um, change in our DNA or the way that our cell can repair itself. And so what we think about is the more times that you do something, the more times you have a chance for error. And essentially that's what's happening every time that you ovulate or every time that your ovaries are going through those cycles, you have more of a chance for error, and then that can lead to a cancer development. So birth control pills or having a child means that that's a period of time that you are not ovulating, that your ovaries are quiet. And so they are not working, which is OK. I mean, they're working enough to give you hormones, but they're not ovulating, which means releasing an egg and then changing. Yeah, That's and, a lot of
0: change. Yeah. That has It's a lot of change that happens in that cycle. Later. That's, right. that's yeah, exactly it's, right. It's not just about the part that we see. Are the part that we feel. There's a lot of other fancy chemical cellular stuff that's mm-hmm. happening in in our ovaries and also in the uterus. That's right. Same thing um, that precede that. And so that it's funny. I asked that question because that's the way that I always thought about it when I was trying to like learn yep. why this makes sense. Yep. Because it's like, well, if you're doing something that makes those cells work and turn over regularly then that's the time when they are susceptible to changes that's right. that predis that that could could turn into cancer. Right. But if they're sitting back quiet, right. hanging out, not doing anything except the the bare minimum, mm-hmm. then they have less
2: there's less of a likelihood that they're going to get in trouble. That's exactly right. And I that, love it. that's what we know about genetic changes too is so what can happen is when those those cells are going through all those changes and they have an error typically we are designed to have our cells repair themselves. But a genetic mutation or something that you inherited from your family or that your body has developed on its own means that your cell doesn't have the ability to repair itself. When that happens, those cells go out of control. They grow incredibly fast. They have too many. They can't die. They forget how to die which makes them become cancer. Um, And that's probably the biggest change that I've seen in our lifetime um, is how much we know about how genetics play into that and then specifically how we can target those mutations, which is incredibly exciting. It's a good time to be an oncologist because that we have made And we just got the results this morning. I'm actually pretty excited about it. But for patients that have either tumor molecular changes that we can target or patients that have a genetic mutation that we can target, we have increased their survival times by 50%. And that is huge for ovary cancer. Huge.
0: And I've seen, like, the numbers. So when I was doing my research for this, um, because this stuff's not all on top of my head. It's not at the tip of my tongue all day but um i looked at the trends mm-hmm. in in ovarian cancer diagnosis over time mm-hmm. and so that thing got real steep it was a big hill right around that 1950s 60s time frame and it stayed up there really really long high time. for a long time but if you look over the past 20 years it's like taken it's plummeting mm-hmm. i mean that mm-hmm. i can actually say that term it's plummeting yes. like it is going down mm-hmm like, just as quickly as there was that steep, you know, increase or incline. Like, we're reversing that. And I thought, wow, that's really exciting. Um, And so we'll talk a little bit more about some of the reasons why that is. But for right now, we're going to hear from Trish, who has patiently been waiting. She is calling us from Jones County. Good morning, Trish. Good morning. My
1: question is, how does sugar affect our immune system? And how does our immune system affect whether or not we catch cancer?
0: (laughs) So so Dr. Haygood, are there any um so first of all I know sugar does affect our immunity. Mm-hmm. And for those those um high like the higher the sugar content, um the more of an influence or impact they have a negative influence on our immune system. But one of the things that Trish brings up that I think is really important is the concept of what is the relationship between our immunity? and and cancer 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 risk um and the next thing that i think is interesting is how likely how likely are we or is it can we because we can catch a lot of things from one another how likely are we to catch cancer or to develop cancer as a result of changes in our immunity
2: yeah so great question um so here's what we know which is not a huge amount but from a basic cellular level like i was talking about the that we were designed that when our cells have defects or our cells have a problem or they are sick, our bodies are designed to fight that and they are designed to repair those. And that's our immune system, which is another way that we've made a huge bump in the treatments is being able to target specifically the body's own immune system and our built-in natural repair processes to go and take care of or to treat that cancer. So when we think about how does sugar kind of a Affect that, and how does having and the studies are a little bit mixed as far as um, ovary cancer goes. Is there is data at least from a basic metabolic level that having higher sugar and essentially feeding the cancer. So you your body needs sugar. Everybody needs a little bit of of sugar in their diet. I won't I won't say that you don't. I but, think I
0: need more. <laughs> I do. You probably specifically do. cake. <laughs> it's the best kind of sugar to have. <laughs>
2: Just I like that. Uh, my coffee is very sweet, so I, I can go along with that too. But from a from a basic metabolic level, our bodies need a certain amount every every day, every minute to function. And so you do need a little bit to function. But if you have an excess and your cancer cells are looking for the excess nutrients, then you're sort of feeding that. And there is some early basic studies that say patients who do a ketogenic diet or patients who – limit their sugar, have better survival outcomes, which is interesting. It's, and there's, they're kind of looking at that right now in a couple of studies that are, at least when we're treating cancer, can we do fasting, can we do ketogenic diets, and will that improve cancer treatment rates? And, and the initial data is that it does. Now, it hasn't been replicated on big studies, but for initial data, it's, to me it's very interesting to think about. So, Trish, does
0: that help to answer your question?
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, Chris.
2: No, thank you so
0: much for your call and for bringing up the issue of the link between immunity and cancer and also the importance of nutrition mm-hmm. and how nutrition might um, influence or impact. So one of the things that we um, often uh, talk about here on the show, because we we are MDs, Dr. Brown and I, um, and so we were tra- both trained in allopathic medicine um, but we've had we have guests who um, are naturopaths who do holistic medicine, who offer complementary medicine and other therapies. And one of the things I think that a lot of times on the allopathic side, um, as physicians, we are sometimes criticized because mm-hmm. everybody's like, oh, you just want to give us a pill. you know like we never really focus as much on those other things. And I will say that our training in our clinical years, on nutrition and those kinds of things is not really great. Limited. It is not really great. So, when we first start, when they're like bombarding us with anatomy and biochemistry and all those things, we learn a little bit more about nutrition, but that stuff kind of gets pushed way way back to the base of our brain and it's kind of buried under a lot of other stuff. Um and and it is true that most of us don't feel very comfortable discussing right. the importance of nutrition and adequate nutrition. So, Shout out to all of the the nutritionists and and dietitians and all those folks who are out there because you are such a critical part of our team by focusing in in that space and filling that gap for people. Um, but there's a lot of enthusiasm um, on behalf of, of patients and the general populace to find natural ways yeah. or other ways that they can do things, that's an empowering thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like what I bring into my body and um, what I consume, if I can do something to help optimize my personal health so that I'm better prepared to yep. fight my cancer, yep. or if I can have a diet that will make me less susceptible, um, then people are very interested in doing that. So that stuff's all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it has reasonable data behind it and then some of it's a little sketchy guys it's a little sketchy um so i totally believe that there are definitely natural approaches that are very effective Mm -hmm. Um, and i'm a huge proponent of people seeking that out when they find good information Um, and if it works for you i think that's fantastic if you're a person who's had a a a dietary application in your life that has helped you in your cancer journey or that's made things better for you, we'd love to hear that story. Our phone lines are open. We are talking about ovarian cancer. We can talk about endometrial cancer. We've talked about cervical cancer. We are talking about cancers in women. Um, here with our special guest and expert, Dr. Christy Haygood, who is a gynecologic oncologist or GYN oncologist practicing at St. Dominic and at UMMC. And so we have a couple of calls on the line, so we're going to go directly to the phone lines and hear first from Hazel, who's calling us from sugarlock Good morning, Hazel.
1: Good morning, good morning. Um, first off, I, I just wanted to say that um, my sister... She has ovarian cancer. She's had it for three years and three months now, and she is currently on hospice. Um, her, mm-hmm. Today, they told us her kidneys are failing. So, mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, she fought a, a hard fight, and I'm going to get through this out crying, <laughs> but she fought a hard fight, and she was uh, like your friend that passed. She was a very gracious lady, and um, she never let it get her down. People looked at her and they didn't even think she had cancer until you see her now, you know. And then you, mm-hmm. also see her. but her ovarian cancer um, spread to her brain. Um, back in August, uh, she had a uh, well, the first Sunday in August, she had a, a seizure, and they rushed her to the hospital. Of course, sent her to UAB in Birmingham and said that um, she had it had she had hundreds of little tumors in her brain. So. Mm-hmm. Of course, there was nothing else they could do, but um, I, w- I just wanted to say, when my sister, before she first got sick, her symptoms was, she, um, and right now she's 61, and so she, she developed this, what, I think at 58, but she, for as long as I can remember, she had very, very heavy periods, and she, whenever she'd be on her period, she couldn't even leave the house because she said it was so bad. And that went on for a while. And then the next thing she developed before we knew she had cancer now, the next thing that she was having was reoccurring, um, um, I lost some phone call, reoccurring um, urinary tract infection. Mm-hmm. And we didn't think anything about it, but every time I talked to her, she said, Sissy, I'm just feeling bad again. That's another, you know, infection. And I told her, "Sister, they to do some blood work on you or something, but um, rock on a little while longer." She, um, in February of 2019, she was she was diagnosed in June, but in February of 2019, she um, we went on a little vacation, and we could feel some something on her lower abdomen. And I told her, "Sister, as soon as you get home, you go to the emergency room and you tell them to do a CT scan on you." Well, she had been to her uh, her gynecologist before then like 2 months before and they did an ultrasound and said that it was some um um cyst on her ovaries. So they didn't do a scan then, but in February of 2019 they did do a CT scan and that is how they found her ovarian cancer and she was stage 3 all this. <laughs> Uh, almost stage four and that was in 2019 and she did 67 rounds of chemo she was never in remission Mm -hmm. and they tried every kind of chemo they could think of and like I said in this August she uh, it spread to her brain and now she's you know terminal but um, the comment that I wanted to make is and I know y'all are busy but um, why why don't the doctors do a CT scan yearly to check for ovarian cancer because in our, in our understanding, that is the only way they can detect ovarian cancer. Shouldn't it be done like they do a mammogram every year and a pep, pap smear every year?
0: Hazel, thank you so much for sharing your so- story. And our our hearts go out to you and your family as you are kind of walking this journey with your sister. Um, it is incredibly difficult. Um, yeah. and I'm gonna go ahead and, you, but you raised so many good questions yeah. and, and some good points that we had talked about making sure we covered. Um, so one is just some of the symptoms yeah. that people can so- have. And then the other is is about screening, right? Like, how mm-hmm. do we? This thing is Why really can't we find it.
2: Yeah. yeah. What's what's the best way to find it? Yeah. And, and and how good are we at doing that? Not very good. So, um, <laughs> so you're exactly right. So, um, there are no good symptoms. So essentially, women that have bleeding, typically after menopause, where you get worried about that, we initially go looking for it, and oftentimes that's how we find endometrial cancer. But, women who complain of hey, I had a little bit of back pain, I had a little bit of bloating, I'm gaining a little weight, my stomach feels a little bit bigger, um, I had some recurrent UTIs, which could be a symptom, Those none of those individually automatically point to, in, to ovarian cancer, not like bleeding does, or um, a cervical pap, pap smear that's abnormal, none of those point to ovarian cancer, and so um, All of those symptoms put together might make a physician um, suspicious, but none of them say, hey, this is ovary cancer. Um, I think getting an ultrasound is typically a, a good way for people to start a workup. It certainly does not diagnose ovary cancer. And even a CT scan does not diagnose ovarian cancer. And that, the point that you brought up about why don't we just do a CT scan on everybody? So we looked at a really big study um, across the nation. It actually came out of UAB, um, where we try to figure out, is there a way that we can screen for ovary cancer? And unfortunately, what we found was that we didn't pick up very many ovary cancers, but what we did was a lot of unnecessary surgeries on women who didn't need them, and then like say we found a cyst, so we did surgery, but then they had a complication from their surgery, but their cyst was actually benign. And so from a screening standpoint, doing a CT scan on everybody is not a great screening tool. Um, Like a pap smear, which is not invasive and um, cost-effective and patients tolerate it very well, CT scan doesn't really fit into that category. Um, And it's kind of the same with uh, ultrasound being a starting point, but not necessarily the be-all, end-all. Sometimes we do lab work, like a CA-125. You might hear talked about that's a marker in the blood. It's also not perfect. Um, it's, it's not great at picking things up, um, but it can give us a little bit more information. But similarly, in that study, when we looked at all women and just kind of screening the entire population was that we found we were doing more surgery than was necessary and we weren't changing the outcomes for ovary cancer which is ultimately what we want to do so we want to be able to pick them up at an earlier stage and when you mentioned that your sister was diagnosed at stage three that's a very common diagnosis in fact that's where most women are diagnosed is at an advanced stage Um, just because the symptoms are sneaky the other thing that's a little bit different about ovary cancer too is that ovaries are exposed to kind of everything in the abdomen so the peritoneal fluid the omentum which you hear talked about the bowels all of that lives right next to there so those cancer cells can kind of easily spread within the abdominal cavity they have a lot of close neighbors yep that's exactly i, right. I will
1: say this i will say this as well then i'll get off the line but um she she tested negative for the um the b something or another yeah what brca mm-hmm she tested negative for it and then my gynecologist um since she you know, we're sisters, she, they checked me and I was negative for it as well, but since I was having some issues, they went ahead and uh, removed my ovaries as well because I had had a partial history of years ago. So they went ahead and got my ovaries out just to be on the safe side because my doctor said, well, even though you tested negative, that don't mean that you can't get ovarian cancer. So I'm like, take them.
2: Yeah, and and that's right. That's right. Just because you're negative. I I tell people a lot of times it's not that um, because we don't know all the things that lead to ovary cancer. And so just because you tested negative for this doesn't mean that you are not going to get it.
1: Right. Well, thank you so much, ladies, and um, I appreciate
2: y'all.
0: We're keeping you in thoughts and prayers, Hazel. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, so there were a couple of things. Um, gosh, Hazel, I keep thinking about that. Um, she mentioned also that um, the cysts on the ovaries. And so this is one of those things that can be very disconcerting to people. Mm-hmm. I have a cyst on my ovaries. Um, when should a person be concerned, or should they be concerned, Um, If they are a person who's been told they have a lot of cysts or if they've been identified as a person with a cyst on their ovaries, how much does the presence of a cyst um, or how often does a cyst turn into ovarian cancer?
2: Yeah, so very rarely does a cyst turn into ovarian cancer. It's important to remember that all women who ovulate have a cyst on their ovaries. So if you are trying to get pregnant, or if you would not like to get pregnant, but you're ovulating, you have a cyst on your ovary. And that's normal. That's perfectly normal. That's the exact way we were designed. So the way that that should work, though, is that cyst ruptures or it opens. The egg comes out. We ovulate. Bingo. The ovary resolves your cyst. So when you get worried about that is... Now, size-wise, can be a problem. So, three to four centimeters can be perfectly normal for a cyst that's about to ovulate or about to release that egg. Anything over that, you start to be like, mm, uh, we might want to check this out again. We might want to watch this. Anything more than ten centimeters, we're probably going to say eh, we need some more tests. Uh, this is very unlikely to go away on its own. Cysts that are less than ten centimeters actually have a very high chance of going away on their own and can be perfectly normal. So, um, there's a fair number of women that I get sent that have cysts on their Ovaries that we don't do surgery for. We watch for a while. My husband likes to joke, it's the old doctor watch and wait, watch mm-hmm. and see what happens. People get very uncomfortable yep. when they hear that though, because they'll say, But I
0: have a cyst on my ovary. And and I will say to my my patients, you should have a cyst on your ovary, because my folks are primarily reproductive age people. <laughs> I'm like, you should have a cyst on your ovary. That is, you know. A norm, and they'll say, that's normal? That was That's something that a lot of people don't know is that it can be perfectly normal yep. um, to have a cyst on ovaries, which is why most of the time people press the pause button and they yep. say, well, let's just wait and see, because most of the time that's just a normal finding. It doesn't represent an abnormality. Now, there are things that one may see or observe on an ultrasound um, or maybe even on some other kind of imaging. If you do happen to have a CT, although ultrasound is considered to be better best mm-hmm. to to look at ovaries um, and so there are changes that we may see on ultrasound that may make us more concerned or we're more concerned about this cyst than another because they don't all look the same. That's right. um, and so um, either a radiologist or a person who's trained in interpretation of, of pelvic ultrasound can kind of help to clarify um, whether or not it's something that looks concerning or not. But just because you have an ovarian cyst doesn't mean that you have cancer and it doesn't mean that that cyst is going to become cancer. Um, one of the other things that was mentioned really quickly and I know we're down to the last couple of minutes but how does age play into ovarian cancer risk and the other thing is does everybody need a CA-125 or when do you need a CA-125 yeah
2: so Age, um, Ovary cancer development is is directly related to age. So people who are over the age of 50 typically are at higher risk of developing ovary cancer. So menopausal status is typically when women are diagnosed. Um, there are some younger women who are diagnosed. Of course, there's outliers, but typically most people after the age of 50. Um, and should everybody get ca C125? So um, I personally am not going to get one because it's not a good marker. So it's, it's just not great. I mean, I've seen um, the normal value is under 35. And I've seen people who had the flu um, that were in the 3000s. So uh, anything that irritates the peritoneum, so did you have a stomach virus? Do you have diverticulitis? Did you have a UTI? Any of that can make your CO125 be elevated. And so it's not a good screening test it's something that would lead us to do further workup or invasive procedures when you didn't really need that to begin with people who do need a ca 125 are one thing that you could do so we talked about knowing your family genetics and knowing your family history so we have found that people who have genetic risk or are high risk for family cancer or family related cancers um doing a CA-125 and an ultrasound over a long-term period can be helpful for them. And so the other thing is if you have a cyst on your ovary and you're worried about it, you can get a CA-125, and that may be helpful for further workup.
0: So that's pretty good, guys. So everybody doesn't need a CA-125, and if you just go grabbing one, you might find yourself with information you know, that – yeah, that, that that actually may not help and may do more harm than good. Um, but in certain select populations, with your um, clinician's advice, it may be advisable for you to be one of those people, and usually that's done in concert with... Ultrasound and sure. other things in the highest risk groups. Um, so, we yeah. are down to about the last 30 seconds or so of our show. So,
2: any closing closing uh, wisdom that you'd like to give for folks out there? Yeah, well, I do want to put in just one plug for the Nukes Ovarian Cycle, um, which is going to be on September 22nd. It's a Thursday from 9 to 2 in the district at, in, of Eastover. Um, come ride a bike, don't ride a bike, come see us, come join your money for us to help raise funds for ovary cancer research.
0: That would be wonderful. Please do that. It's great, and you know what? It's, it's such a, a fun it's good event to get active and to and talk about exercise and Indeed. nutrition. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Great event.
0: Fantastic, Chrissy Hager. I am so glad you came to yeah, hang out thanks with me for having today. Me. You'll have to come back again because look, it's so many more things that we can talk about, and there were like fifty million other things that we didn't get a chance to discuss today. But I will be so glad to have you back. Thank you so much for being with us and for all the wonderful work you do um, in helping women. Ushered through some of the most difficult times of their lives You're a star. Yeah, thank you I appreciate it. Well guys, our time is up. It went really fast Today's Southern Remedy was produced and engineered by none other than the man, Jay White um, In, doc- in, in Abstentia for Dr. Allie Brown I'm Dr. Michelle Owens Thank you so much for being with us. Join us next Friday, same time, same bat channel for Southern Remedy for Women Y'all be safe and be kind